He says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. He says, I just consider all that a waste next to the importance of Jesus. And this next verse here, it's a verse, man, it ought to be our motto, it ought to be our calling, it ought to encompass our passion, what we're about. But in verse 10, that very verse, he says, I want to know Christ. You start to excel in that. It's about relationship. It's about knowing Jesus in a, in a personal manner, not, not as a God who's distant, but as a God who's been he says, I want to know Christ. And he says, and the power of his resurrection. Oh, yeah. Yeehaw, man. I want to know what it means to walk in God's power. The resurrection power that raised him from the grave and that lives within the heart of all children of God who have bowed to him and received the Spirit. I want to know that power of his resurrection. But this morning, we're not going to focus on the power of his resurrection, but this next part that's not nearly as says and the fellowship of sharing in the suffering becoming like him in his death Paul says I not only want to know in his glorious power in the victories and in the mountaintops and, and being the victorious conquering one I want to know him in those times of pain in those times of sorrow those times of struggle. Alan Redpath, Paul sang. He said, when God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. When God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. You see, we look at suffering and we say, man, that's bad. I don't want any part of it. There's nothing good that can come. How can a holy God allow suffering to be a part of life? Suffering, the great evil. But yet as we look at this text, God, in, the, in the midst of pain, there is something that happens when we are crushed that allows the fragrance of Jesus to come from our lives. And, and that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. Um, how God works in the midst of There's something to it about suffering when it happens to somebody else. And we'll get into that when we walk us through the story of the uh, reporter who called his editor at the newspaper a story. He said, I have this story that's important. He said, well, what is it? He said, well, this truck came out of nowhere, and it rolled down the hill, and it got into a house. And the editor said, that's not a story. That's not important. And the reporter said, well, I'm glad you're so calm about it. It was your house. <laughs> it makes a difference, doesn't it? It's one thing when a person's hurting, when a person's suffering, when a person's experiencing great loss, but it's something else entirely when it's me. When I first hand experienced that pain, he said, Doug, what are you trying to do? 
what's the lesson here? What is it you want to teach me? Are you just mean? What is this about, God? What are you, what are you up to? What are you doing? And, and some of you were arguing with those people. And you went, I appreciate it, but you went, I'm here. I'm faced with this. Some of you have come to face the death of a child and because you know what this means. Because you do. Some have went through the loss of a house through a fire. I'll never forget Richard's that we came from. A friend of mine in the church. He worked at a grid plant. He took me one night to see a, a kiln. 1,100 degrees did I know that was 9 o'clock. His house had fire coming. It didn't burn to the ground, but it was fire. As I saw this house burning, I said, man, there was this fire. It was. And you say, God, what are you doing? I'm throwing it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm just going to share it briefly. One thing God does to us that day is a great value. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 Starting at verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we're distressed, it's your comfort and salvation, and the comfort is your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. And that is God doesn't waste a pain. I know that if God directs you through life somewhere down the road, there is someone else who goes through an immense pain similar to yours. And who better to understand that pain than the one who has previously gone through a similar type of loss. God takes that and he, and he works through it. And, and I want to make a statement here that as we go through the scripture that I think is pivotal to this message that I'm trying to communicate and that is this. It is not what happens to us. It is what happens in us. It is not what Sharp as a knife here. First Peter uh, chapter five. Beginning at verse ten. He says, May God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power for Notice this verse. To make you strong, firm, and steadfast. It's not what happens to you. It's what happens in you. What, what he's trying to do is to make you strong, firm, and steadfast. He's trying to make you like Jesus. It's not what happens to you. It's what happens in you. It's his work. It's his turning away of, of those edges where we need to come into the likeness of the one who loves us. Is his work. That's what he's about. 
person on the screen. Um, and he uses a couple of examples here. Now, let's get, I'm finally going to get to our text in Romans 18 as we look at the groans, as we look at the glory. Starting at verse 18, he says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is being revealed. more than the suffering. The, the groans do not outweigh the roar. That's, that's what he's saying here. And then he gives two examples here. The first example, he deals with creation. When he deals with the creation, the, the land of Judaism, he says the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Right now, as we look around, there is this bondage to decay in the creation. There's erosion. And, and you look around at some of the things we see, like you know, strip mining, rainforests that are being destroyed, um, and, and then the survival of the fittest, animals that, that, that die. I love to watch any of the wild Just as you do creation. And, and there's this bondage to decay that's described here. But there's within nature something deeper. There's a yearning. There's a longing. There's a, a crying out for something else. And, 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 and this word here, this longing, it gives the idea of giving birth. It gives the idea of labor pains. It gives the idea of a pain that's there for a greater purpose. I mean, let's face it. You know, when, when you have a child, you, you never see as far as the puppy mill. You, you never see the puppy mill and say, man, I'm going to show you some pictures of my wife while she was in labor. You should have heard her squealing. Gee, really, that was hard. That was terrible. That was horrible. Well, you don't see that. I mean, you don't see pictures of, of, the, of the mommy in labor pushing that baby out. It's, it's for a purpose, and that purpose is for us to come to Christ Jesus. And we're looking for Jesus to come, for the sons of God to be revealed, for the Son of God to come. That's what's in there for us. Um, next, there is the groans of God's children. Look here at verse 23. He says, not only so, but we ourselves who have fruits, first fruits of the Spirit, Run inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. <coughs> He's talking about the child of God. And the first fruits of the Spirit is a reference to the one who is first among that description here. He says, to the ones who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who have been born from above, who, who are belong to the Master, to the King, and who he's talking to. He says, to those of you who have been transformed by the power 
power of Jesus Christ. It's inside of you. There is a longing. There is a groaning for what is to come. That he, he talks about here in the text. He says, right now you're groaning inwardly. You should come out. Praise from some place emotionally. He says, therefore, do not lose heart. He says, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary trouble are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what's seen is temporary. What's unseen is eternal. You know, we're wasting away. You know, I can remember when my dad had. So, so weak and, and insecure and, and dependent. Man, it just crushed me. And, and there was a lady helping to take care of him in that way. And, and I'll never forget a little thing that was in that scripture that, that made me laugh. Verse 3, verse 7. It says, When the picture was being held, he told me, I don't know how many times that I'm going to hear that picture. Because it's something I've never seen in my whole life. Never seen it. Learning many more wisdom is seeking after. And there is among many who have loved ones who are old and living in misery. To see that resurrected body, that what it's going to be like instead of what it is right now, at this moment, as it awaits us, as, as it will be ours. And I love that he says adoption as sons. You see, we're brought into the family of God. We're not deserving. God sought us out. He chose us. He reached out to us. And in his grace, he said, come to me. And he hugged us to himself. He brought us to himself. That's what Calvary's about. That's what his love is about. That's what grace, mercy. It's the ultimate blessing. God reaching out to us. And he loves us. And my sister and daughter, my niece and her husband, desperately, struggled with the idea of adoption. And they finally were so certain they said, well, we're <laughs> Okay. And then they turned around a year or two later and through set of circumstances were able to adopt a biological sister. They were living with her. Both of them had two kids in her. And I remember talking to Chad and Jeff. I know you guys struggle with this idea of adoption. 
to long for him, to, to seek him, and to know that his word is true and that his promise is sure, and then that's where you need to rest. That's where you need to look. Um, I want to close. This is from an old book from back in the 80s. What's really sad is it doesn't sound as old to me as it should. <laughs> but it's called Choices and Changes. And some of you may be familiar with the uh, ministry of Johnny Erickson's father, who as a teenager dove into water that wasn't as deep as she thought, and she broke her neck and lived like a quadriplegic for years. And ministered greatly to those who were handicapped and struggled. And she mentions in here about another lady, a single couple of other books, Cliff Tindon, who was in concentration camp in World War II. Great hiding place. He wrote a great book, great book, talking about how God protected her and how God was working. Gave her the opportunity to travel around and speak. But I just want to read to you, this is the closing of this book. As Johnny through the book talks about choices, talks about changes, she closes making mention of Cora. Now think of Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered. Ken and I, servants no greater than a master, learned to do the same. This is the grind scene. Okay, I'm in the wrong place here. Be patient with me. He says, everywhere we go in Poland, people give us flowers. Fresh, thick bouquets. How odd it is to see these same flowers swishing in the wind here, here on Potter's Peace. Even though the grounds of this death camp are so very tidy, delicate wisps of wildflowers crop up here and there around the bases of thick buildings and trunks of trees. We wonder if the government, which operates a museum here, has sown wildflower seeds to brighten the horrible, depressing place. I notice a row of lovely rose bushes planted just away from the gruesome gas chamber. I asked our guide about the roses, and he's quick to point out that where flowers are now was once hard, naked clay, every blade of grass picked clean by starving prisoners. Bare bricks, barbed wire, storehouses of eyeglasses, hair, and gold teeth, canes, brushes, shoes, hearing aids, stacks of yellowed and dusty record books, neatly tabulated numberless names, calendars, and dark even the ominous chimneys and ovens, all these things I've learned associated with Nazi death camps are here. And I shiver. Not so much from the cold as from the thought that people handicapped like me were the first to be exterminated and labeled as useless bread gobblers. But even this thought is not entirely new. It's the flowers. The flowers are something I didn't expect. And for that reason, they're out of place and as such as me as nothing else. We journey the short distance from Auschwitz to Birkenau, here trainloads of Jews and descendants were emptied out into the freezing night to face the machine guns of powerful and insane men. Children were gun-butted one way, their mothers herded the other, and men were separating the groups of the old and young, but virtually all of them, billions of them ended up in one place, in Sunday. Now crumbled and overgrown at the end of the camp. Nothing stands in this camp, our God explains, that what appeared to be orderly rows of heaps of brick were once the smokestacks of wooden barracks. Nothing remains of the guard tower, 
Seeing the train tracks and railroad ties are robbed and uprooted, but like airy little field daisies, hark at the acres swaying the rain they fear. What are you thinking? Can't ask, sleeping a couple hours more. I was thinking of Tante Corey, Corey Tenenbaum. I'll find the answer. She was in a place not unlike this, a nod toward the pill of goats. By all accounts, she should have died 40 years ago in this concentration camp, I said. Ken shakes his head and wonders. Who would have thought she would leave that god-awful place? At 50 years of age, he marvels, his eyes fasten on the company of semi-ogres who shards away and then to start a whole new ministry. I recall Tommy Corey's recent funeral in a small suburban cemetery a few miles south of Los Angeles. It was the flowers that impressed me that day, too. No hothouse bloom stuck in styrofoam, cut out shapes of hearts or crosses or doves. No white satin banners with gold-sprinkled messages of sympathy. Instead, there were vases, tens of vases of crumpled, cut tulips of yellow and gold, bouquets of dewy white carnations, and bunches of heavy red roses someone had clipped from Corey's backyard. The casket was closed. The music was Bach. The eulogies were glowing but understated. The only extravagance was the profusion of flowers, and the little stone chapel was filled with a sweet fragrance. Now I sit in this vast field. Memories of Corey stirring my thoughts. The only things that move are the wind and the daisies. It is at once striking and poignant. For Corey, who came out of the pit of this hell, would be the first to say that the suffering in this place confronted her with the reality of the love or hate of her heart. The confinement of her lonely cell attacked her own vanity and her own ego. The crushing needs of her fellow prisoners constantly exposed her own need to give and share. She could not blame. She could only forgive. I dropped my gaze to the daisies. Kids tucked into the straps of my arm splints. A knowing smile crosses my lips. I would be the first to say that my wheelchair confronts me daily with a love and hate mind all over town. I glance at Ken, who sits beside me in the grass. God has placed us together to love and hate. I recall another memory of Corey and flowers. The evening at that convention, when, amid the applause of thousands, she lifted her bouquet of roses to Eddie, she would be the first to say that books on a bestseller list mean nothing except that lives are changed through them. She would say that a first-run major motion picture of her life was not worth less. I said people were helped. Really. Even a ministry that took her all over the world with opportunity to speak and meet headlining names in evangelical circles, even that, she would say, only counts in the kingdom as far as it serves Christ. And I would say the same. In both my public ministry and my private life with Ken, I'm God, God constantly asking to uncover my fails. But that's my joyous choice, asking to chase and purify and melt any resistance to change on my secular road. I smile. In fact, I throw my head back and laugh out loud. And I tell Ken at the time I first met that remarkable woman years ago when we were both attending convention where our new books were being presented. Corey approached from down the long, red-carpeted hallway of the hotel. People were all about, and no many saw her attention. But she strode directly toward me, hiked her cane on her elbow, reached for a hand, a strong hand that all survivors have, and announced in her thick Dutch accent, one day, my friend, we will be dancing together in heaven because of the Lord Jesus. And today I can laugh and rejoice because Corey's dancing now, over the devil and over this world, and that's changed.
experience and uh, one day it will be as it's meant to be, as it's supposed to be. As you have made it, Lord. Amen. Father, uh, we come to you. somebody here who needs to just have that love and just receive that love. It sounds so easy and, and yet it is a surrender which is never easy. A surrender to say yes to all that you have and all that I am and to let the truth come to you Lord so that I may receive not what I deserve but what I have. And I pray this morning Lord that this Lord you need to say Jesus for others here who, Lord, have experienced your grace and now, Father, need to follow you. May they need to come and share it with your people that now they're part of your family. Now they want to follow you back to you. Now they want to serve you. Not be known, but we want to be people who know. And Father, maybe there's people here who have a burden so heavy that they just have lost sight. Trust you, Lord, to listen and talk to you, and to find, find love, Lord, find life in you. Father, you provide supernatural power and natural grace. I just ask that happen to you. Thank you for working, Lord. And we just ask you to continue in this little time set aside. May we follow your call. In your name we pray.